Hi everyone, this is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EM Basic Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Hemonk emergencies. Since this is a relatively broad topic, we'll be splitting this into two episodes. In this first episode, we'll discuss the oncology side of Hemonk emergencies and talk about neutropenic fever, tumor lysis syndrome, and other complications of malignancy. The second episode will cover hematologic emergencies such as anemia, hemophilias, ITP, and TTP. You will see lots of patients with neutropenic fever in the emergency department, and they can be very sick, so it's important that we know this topic cold. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views of Prince Department Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Shawshank Emergency Program. Let's talk first about neutropenic fever. Usually, we know this workup is coming because patients with cancer who are on chemotherapy are very good about coming to the ED when they have a fever. These patients are at high risk for infection and severe sepsis, so their oncologists do a good job of telling them to come to the ED if they have a fever. Neutropenic fever is obviously defined by two variables, the presence of a low white blood cell count, aka neutropenia, and the presence of a fever. Let's talk first about the fever component, because that's the piece of information that you'll get as soon as the patients present to triage. For the purposes of defining a neutropenic fever, fever is defined as an oral temp of 100.9 Fahrenheit, or 38.3 Celsius, on one single occasion, or a temperature of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, or 38 degrees Celsius, that persists for more than one hour. In my experience, patients do the right thing, and usually present to the ED if they have any temperature of 100.4 or 38 Celsius, even if it doesn't persist for that hour. Given that these are high-risk patients, you will most likely proceed with the same workup, even if the temperature was borderline at 100.3 degrees, or if the patient felt warm. One important point in these patients is that all temperatures are taken orally in patients on chemotherapy. Never, let me repeat, never take a rectal temperature or do a digital rectal exam in a patient who is neutropenic or on chemotherapy. The concern here is that the mucosal trauma from a rectal temperature or rectal exam can cause seeding of bacteria and very bad sepsis since the patient is immunocompromised from their chemo. I used to wonder if this was some sort of medical myth or just being overly cautious until one of my colleagues told me about a patient on a hemonc floor who accidentally received a rectal acetaminophen suppository and developed severe gram-negative sepsis from E. coli. So once again, never perform rectal temps in patients who are neutropenic or on chemo. Only use oral temps. Jumping backwards a little bit, the next variable that defines neutropenic fever is the extent of the patient's neutropenia, or how low their white blood cell count is. We'll talk more about that later when we discuss the lab workup of these patients. So when you pick up a chart for a patient with suspected neutropenic fever, you'll want to scan the vitals for the temperature, as well as the heart rate and blood pressure to look for any signs of obvious sepsis, like tachycardia or hypotension. Also check the triage note to look for any red flags, such as a new port being placed, or any information about when the patient's last chemo was done. When you go into the room, do a foot-of-the-bed assessment to see if the patient is obviously sick, and start the appropriate resuscitation with IV access and IV fluids if they are critically ill. However, most of these patients will not be critically ill in presentation, so you have some time to do a history and physical exam. Ask the patient what their primary cancer is, and when was their last dose of chemotherapy. Patients are at highest risk for neutropenia, five to 10 days after their last dose of chemo, with a recovery of their white count five days later. If the patient knows, find out what chemo regimen they are on.
This won't be very important for the ED workup, but it may be nice to tell your consultants when you call them. Ask the patient about the specific temperatures they recorded at home and what, if any, symptoms they are having. Ask about standard infectious symptoms such as cough, malaise, headache, body aches, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and urinary symptoms. Ask the patient if they have noticed any new rashes or bumps that could be abscesses. Also ask them about any recent hospitalizations or procedures. If the patient has an indwelling port, ask them when it was put in and pay special attention to ports that were placed in the last few weeks or if the patient has noticed any redness or swelling over their port. Ask the patient about any bouts of neutropenic fever in the past or any major complications from their cancer treatment. Finally, round out your history with the usual questions such as their patient's past medical history, medications, allergies, surgeries, and the all-important social history so your chart is 100% complete. For the physical exam, you will do your standard head-to-toe assessment, but pay special attention to certain areas. The two most important areas not to miss here is the patient's port and their skin. If the patient has a port, make sure to examine it for any erythema, swelling, or induration. Make sure to do a thorough skin exam to look for any abscesses, including perirectal and perianal abscesses. These patients are immunocompromised, so they can hide these abscesses very well. Don't forget a good abdominal exam to look for the standard culprits in the abdomen, like cholecystitis and appendicitis. Patients undergoing chemotherapy are at risk for a condition called neutropenic enterocolitis, which is more commonly known as tiflitis. This is an inflammation around the cecum, which can progress to perforation if it's not caught early. We'll talk more about this later. When you're thinking about possible sources of infection, Rob Orman from the ERCast podcast has a great mnemonic if you like these. In terms of broad categories of infection, use the mnemonic LUCAS. That's lung, urine, CNS, abdomen, and skin. That will make sure that you don't miss any broad categories of infection. Now let's talk about the lab and radiology workup in patients with neutropenic fever. This one is pretty standardized, and one of these workups that can be virtually placed on autopilot because it's pretty much the same for all patients that come in with neutropenic fever. In these patients, make sure to get a CBC with differential, a complete metabolic panel, a UA, urine culture, two sets of blood cultures, and a chest x-ray. Getting a lactate and venous blood gas as well to screen for severe sepsis is not a terrible idea either, but most would argue that you, you can use your gestalt to say whether this patient is really sick or not. If they're critically ill, then definitely get it. If this is cold and flu season, or you highly suspect influenza, then a flu swab would be a good idea, since it may push you towards using Tamiflu, aka Osaltmavir. If the patient is taking Coumadin, aka Warfarin, then get a set of coags. This applies to pretty much any ED patient who gets labs drawn. If they are on Coumadin, then always check the coags. If the patient has symptoms of meningitis, such as a fever with headache, a stiff neck, or altered mental status, then pursue a CT scan and perform a lumbar puncture. Basically, this is your standard infection workup. One major caveat here is to make sure to draw one of the blood cultures from the patient's port if they have one. The only reason why you would not do this is if there are any signs of infection over the port site. In that case, draw both cultures peripherally. Now let's talk about the actual definition of neutropenia because this will be very important for the patient's disposition. Neutropenia is defined as an absolute neutrophil count of less than 1,000, and severe neutropenia 
is defined as an absolute neutrophil count of less than 500. While some labs calculate the absolute neutrophil count automatically, you should know how to do this simple calculation. To figure out the absolute neutrophil count, aka ANC, you will need a CVC with a differential. Take the total white blood cell count and multiply it by the percentage of neutrophils on the differential. For example, if the patient has a white blood cell count of 1000 with 70% neutrophils, then that would be 1000 times 0.7 for 70%, which equals 700. This patient would be considered neutropenic, but not severely neutropenic since their ANC is above 500. One small note about the ANC. Let's say that you have a patient who has a fever, is four days after their last chemo, but their ANC is 1200. Technically, they don't meet criteria for neutropenic fever. However, as we talked about before, the lowest point of the white blood cell count usually occurs five to 10 days after chemo. This is referred to as their white blood cell count nadir, or lowest white blood cell count. So this patient who is four days out from their last round of chemo may continue dropping below the threshold of 1000 and still may need aggressive treatment or at least close follow-up. So be aware of those patients and don't disregard an ANC that is above 1,000 if the patient hasn't quite reached their nadir yet. Before we go forward, let's do a quick review of what we've talked about so far. Neutropenic fever is defined as a temperature of greater than 100.9 Fahrenheit, or 38.3 Celsius, one time, or 100.4 Fahrenheit, or 38 Celsius, for more than one hour. If in doubt, or if the patient is borderline, then do the full workup. All temperatures in chemo patients are done orally. Never do a rectal temp or rectal exam on these patients. Be on the lookout for signs of severe sepsis such as tachycardia and hypotension. Ask the patient when their last dose of chemo was. Most patients are neutropenic 5 to 10 days after the last dose of chemo. Do a thorough history and physical, focus on infectious symptoms, any indwelling devices such as a port, and do a thorough skin exam looking for abscesses. Labs include a CBC with differential, a complete metabolic panel, UA, urine culture, and blood cultures times 2. If the patient has a port, make sure one of those blood cultures is from the port. Also order a chest x-ray and consider a VBG and lactate if the patient looks really sick. Check the patient's coags if they're on warfarin. Finally, do a CT and LP if you're suspicious for meningitis. Neutropenia is defined as an absolute neutrophil count of less than 1,000, with severe neutropenia being less than 500. To calculate the absolute neutrophil count, or ANC, simply take the total white blood cell count and multiply it by the percentage of neutrophils in the differential. Patients who are not quite at their expected white blood cell count nadir, for example, at four days after the last dose of chemo, may be at risk for neutropenia in the near future and need special consideration. Before we talk about antibiotic coverage, we should talk about the general disposition of these patients because we may not have to admit all patients and start them on big gun antibiotics. Some patients may be appropriate for outpatient follow-up. You may want to avoid admitting these patients because admissions puts them at risk for catching a nosocomial infection in the hospital, and don't forget about iatrogenic harm as well. So if we can, we'd like to keep these patients out of the hospital. If the patient looks sick or is critically ill, then by all means start immediate empiric antibiotics and aggressively resuscitate. If the patient is not critically ill and looks well, look in their labs and chest x-ray to see if you can determine a source for their fever. It's entirely likely that you will not find an obvious source of infection. 
Many of these patients have minor viral infections or simply fluctuations in their temperature that cause the fever. Once you have all your data back, this is where it's important to speak with a patient's oncologist or, or whoever's on call for HEMOC. Here's how to have a conversation with your HEMOC consultant. I have a 70-year-old male with a history of lung cancer coming in with neutropenic fever seven days after his last chemo. He was febrile to 101 at home and has some congestion and cough, but no obvious source. He looks well and all of his vitals are good with no hypotension. His ANC is 800 and the rest of his workup, including a chest x-ray and urine are normal. He may be appropriate for outpatient follow-up. Those five sentences tell you the consultant pretty much everything they need to know about the patient, their cancer type, how many days out from their last chemo, the height of their fever, any possible sources, their ANC, and the results of their workup, and also how the patient looks. Now, how do we decide whether the patient is appropriate for outpatient follow-up? The Infectious Disease Society of America, or IDSA, has a really good set of guidelines for which patients can be treated as outpatients, as well as antibiotic regimens for neutropenic fever. I'll put a link in the show notes to these guidelines. I recommend reading the executive summary at the start, as it's a really nice, concise review of this issue. To help determine inpatient versus outpatient management, there's a scoring system called the MASC score. That's M-A-S-C-C. You don't have to memorize the criteria. I'll put them in the show notes, and they're available on mdcalc.com. Let's review them because they're useful to help you develop a gestalt in these patients. The first step is determining if the patient has no symptoms, mild symptoms, or what they call moderate symptoms. Then there are points for hypotension, a history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, the presence of a solid organ cancer, such as lung or colon cancer, versus a blood cancer like leukemia, no evidence of dehydration, the patient is currently an outpatient and not admitted to the hospital, and the patient is less than 60 years old. All of these criteria are given a certain number of points, and any patient that reaches a score of 21 or more can be considered for outpatient management. So if you want to summarize this, ED patients who are at low risk are younger than 60, are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms, no hypotension, no history of COPD, they aren't dehydrated, and they have a solid organ cancer. As always, the MASS score is just a tool in your arsenal. It's not the absolute gatekeeper to the hospital. You can use this score when you're talking with your hemonc or medicine consultants about the plan for the patient. If the patient is low risk by MASK and can get good follow-up with their oncologist, the IDSA recommends that they be discharged on oral Cipro and Augmentin. That's also known as Ciprofloxacin and Amoxicillin clavanic Acid. Some other possible options include Ciprofloxacin alone versus Ciprofloxacin plus Clindamycin or Levaquin aka levofloxacin alone, but these options are not as well studied in the literature. Now let's talk about empiric antibiotic choices in those patients whom you want to admit. The IDSA recommends coverage with a broad-spectrum antibiotic such as Zosin, aka Piperacillin tazobactam, Cefepime, or a carbapenem such as Meropenem. The dose for Zosin is 3.375 grams IV. Cefepime and Meropenem are both dosed at 2 grams IV. If your patient is allergic to penicillins, most of them can still receive cefepime, as the worry over cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins has been thoroughly debunked. However, if the patient has true anaphylaxis to penicillin, the IDSA gives the option of doing ciprofloxacin and clindamycin, or astreonam and vancomycin. 
the IDSA does not recommend routinely covering admitted patients with vancomycin unless there is suspicion for a port infection, a skin or soft tissue infection, pneumonia, or if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. Also consider adding vancomycin if the patient has a history of MRSA in the past. If you will be adding vancomycin, then it's best to avoid zosin, since there is data suggesting that the combination of zosin and vancomycin may increase the rate of acute kidney injury. The initial dose of vancomycin is dependent on body weight. Most recommend 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram, but for seriously ill patients, you can consider increasing that to 25 to 30 milligrams per kilogram for the first dose to rapidly achieve therapeutic blood levels. This means that the standard one gram of vancomycin is usually an underdose unless your patient weighs 50 kilograms or less. All of this being said, your institution may have guidelines for specific antibiotic coverage for these patients, or your consultants may want to tinker with them a little bit, so that this is where teamwork and communication is vital with your consultants. Make sure to always start these antibiotics in the ED and not delay them until the patient gets admitted. That could mean delay of hours where the patient is not covered with antibiotics, so make sure this is done as soon as possible. Since the mass score technically does not rely on any lab work, you can make a very quick assessment as soon as the patient hits the door as to whether you think they may be admitted or not. If the patient looks well and you think they may go home, there isn't a lot of harm to drawing your cultures and starting the cefepime in the ED while you await their labs and speaking with their oncologist. Even if the patient gets sent home, they just got a dose of broad-spectrum antibiotics in the ED that doesn't need to be redosed for 8 hours, so you just gave them a good bridge towards outpatient therapy. Finally, let's not forget that if you have some surgical source for the neutropenic fever, that needs to be addressed as well. If the patient has any abscesses, these need to be drained, and any abdominal surgical pathology needs to be addressed as well. In patients with abdominal pain or tenderness, have a very low threshold to get a CT to look for tiflitis. Many of these cases can be managed conservatively with fluids, antibiotics, and observation, but they will need admission and serial exams, so get your surgeons on board early if the patient has a surgical source for their neutropenic fever. I know that was a short section, but let's do a quick review. If the patient looks well and meets certain criteria, they may be able to be discharged home with close follow-up with their oncologist. The mass score may help you figure this out. In general, ED patients under 60 who aren't hypotensive, dehydrated, are asymptomatic or have mild symptoms, have no history of COPD, and have a solid organ tumor may be able to be managed as an outpatient with oral antibiotics. Popular choices include ciprofloxacin and augmentin, aka amoxicillin clavanate. Other choices could include ciprofloxacin monotherapy, ciprofloxacin plus clindamycin, or levofloxacin monotherapy. Talk with the patient's oncologist to determine the best antibiotic regimen. For admitted patients, broad-spectrum coverage with zosin, aka piptazo, 3.375 grams IV, or cefepime or meropenem, 2 grams IV is recommended. The IDSA doesn't recommend routine use of vancomycin unless the patient is critically ill, has a skin or soft tissue infection, a port infection, or has a history of MRSA in the past. If you do use vanc, don't use zosin as the combination has been recently shown to increase the rate of acute kidney injury. Vancomycin is dosed at either 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram IV as the first dose, or 25 to 30 milligrams per kilogram IV for critically ill patients. 
As always, follow your institutional guidelines and consultant preferences with antibiotic choices and address any surgical sources of infection ASAP. Now let's talk about a few other complications of cancer that you may see in the ED. One of these complications is tumor lysis syndrome. This usually occurs during treatment of hematologic malignancies such as leukemia. In tumor lysis syndrome, the use of chemotherapy to kill cancerous cells releases massive amounts of intracellular ions, most notably potassium and phosphate, which can lead to huge electrolyte imbalances. The usual cause of complications from tumor lysis syndromes relate to renal failure. These patients can have many vague complaints that you'll commonly see with renal failure, such as fatigue, weakness, and possibly even encephalopathy or altered mental status if it's severe enough. The bottom line is that any patient undergoing current chemotherapy or cancer treatment should pretty much always be screened with labs, including a CBC and complete metabolic panel. The most common lab abnormalities in tumor lysis syndrome are hyperkalemia and hyperphosphatemia. Treatment for tumor lysis syndrome includes aggressive fluid resuscitation to prevent uric acid and phosphate from precipitating in the renal tubules and causing worsening renal failure. Hyperkalemia should be aggressively treated with the big caveat that calcium should be avoided if at all possible. The concern here is that the extra calcium will cause malignant precipitation of calcium phosphate and will worsen renal failure. So reserve calcium administration for those patients with demonstrated arrhythmias or QRS widening on EKG or those with seizures. All of the other hyperkalemia treatments such as albuterol, bicarb, insulin, and glucose are still helpful in these patients. Insulin and glucose has the added benefit of treating the hyperphosphatemia that these patients get. These patients may need hemodialysis to correct their electrolytes, so get your nephrologist on board early to evaluate the patient if they have severe electrolyte abnormalities. The next complication to talk about is spinal cord compression. Back pain in a patient with known or highly suspected cancer is a very worrisome complaint and needs to be aggressively worked up. Most patients will complain of new back pain that is there all the time, regardless of activity, it's progressive, and worse when laying flat. These patients usually complain of back pain that keeps them up at night or wakes them from sleep, as opposed to the usual benign musculoskeletal back pain that usually gets worse throughout the day and gets better with rest. 70% of patients will have pain located in their thoracic area, so don't think of this as a lumbar spine issue. If patients have lumbar involvement, they may complain of classic symptoms of caudoequina, such as weakness of the legs, saddle anesthesia, or bowel or bladder dysfunction. Remember that urinary retention occurs way before urinary or fecal incontinence. The test of choice here is simple, MRI. This is one of the few indications for getting an MRI from the ED, and patients need to get it emergently. When ordering the MRI, even if the patient has symptoms in their lower back, make sure to get an MRI of the T and L spine because masses may be up to four levels higher than their deficits. If you do the L spine MRI alone, you may miss finding a mass in the T spine. If the patient has an absolute contraindication to getting an MRI, then a CT with or without myelography can be done. CT myelography is where a spinal catheter is placed and contrast is infused into the thecal space. This will take a lot of coordination with your radiology and likely anesthesia departments. While waiting the MRI, you should administer steroids. Most textbooks recommend dexamethasone, 10 mg IV, to help reduce spinal cord compression. Malignant spinal cord compression is the one and only time 
you will be emergently calling your radiation oncologist to arrange emergent radiation to help shrink the tumor. Consultation with the spine surgeon may be helpful as well for surgical tumor debulking, so this is a patient that will need a lot of care coordination in the ED. Along the same lines as spinal cord compression, be on the lookout for superior vena cava syndrome. This is where a mass that's somewhere in the patient's chest causes compression of the superior vena cava and its surrounding structures. Most cases of SVC syndrome are caused by lung cancers and lymphomas. The patient's symptoms usually develop slowly over weeks as the tumor slowly compresses the SVC and other vessels compensate. Patients may complain of facial swelling, dyspnea, cough, and arm swelling. Some of them may have voice changes as well. Physical exam may reveal swelling of the face or arm and plethora or a generalized redness of the face and distended neck veins. In patients without a previous diagnosis of cancer, chest x-ray will be the first step, followed by a CT of the chest with contrast. This will help define the borders of the tumor and aid in diagnosis. The management of SVC syndrome is usually not emergent and can include radiation and chemotherapy. In theory, this could be accomplished on an outpatient basis, but this will take coordination with your hemonc team, who may want to admit the patient anyway for expedited workup and treatment. The only time SVC syndrome becomes an emergency is if the patient demonstrates neurological abnormalities from increased intracranial pressure. Finally, just a reminder that patients with cancer are at high risk for pulmonary embolism and malignant pericardial effusion. Chest pain and or shortness of breath in a patient with known or highly suspected cancer is a PE until proven otherwise. Most pericardial effusions are seen in patients with breast or lung cancer or as a complication of radiation or chemotherapy. Some cancer patients may develop very large effusions before becoming symptomatic since these effusions accumulate slowly and the body has a chance to compensate. These patients will look like your typical patient with heart failure, with chest pain and dyspnea on exertion, but they may also have voice changes and dysphagia. On physical exam, you can try to find muffled heart sounds or look for distended jugular veins, but these are not sensitive enough to be reliable. EKG may show findings of low voltage and electrical alternans, which is an R wave of various sizes, beat to beat, caused by the heart swinging back and forth inside of the effusion. The patient's chest x-ray may show cardiomegaly. The key for diagnosis here is bedside ultrasound, looking for the effusion and signs of tamponade, mainly right ventricular collapse. If patients are hemodynamically stable, they can be treated by urgent pericardiocentesis, which can be done either in the cath lab or in the OR. Smaller fusions can be treated with an adjustment in chemotherapy or radiation regimen. Patients who are unstable may need life-saving pericardiocentesis in the ED to prevent hemodynamic collapse. Before we wrap this up, let's summarize the last section on other complications of cancer in the ED. Tumor lysis syndrome most often occurs in hematologic malignancies such as leukemia and is caused by a massive release of intracellular contents including potassium and phosphate. They may present with nonspecific symptoms such as fatigue and malaise, or they may have altered mental status. Treatment is focused on aggressive hydration and treatment of hyperkalemia. Avoid calcium in these patients unless they have EKG abnormalities or have neurological deterioration or seizures to avoid precipitating calcium phosphate in their kidneys. Do all your other treatments for hyperkalemia, including beta agonists, bicarb, insulin, and glucose. Consult nephrology early for dialysis in severe cases. Malignant spinal cord decompression presents as new back pain in a patient with known or suspected cancer.
Most will complain of thoracic back pain and describe it as constant and unrelenting. Worse at night, and worse when supine, instead of the usual benign back pain, which usually gets worse through the day and is better with rest. Patients may also have leg weakness, saddle anesthesia, or changes in bowel or bladder function. The test of choice is an MRI with CT with or without myelography, only if the patient has an absolute contraindication to getting an MRI. Treat with 10 mg of dexamethasone IV to help reduce inflammation on the spinal cord and emergently consult your radiation oncologist for emergent radiation treatment to shrink the tumor to help prevent further compression and loss of function. SVC syndrome usually presents as a slow progression of facial and arm swelling and redness called plethora and possibly cough, dyspnea, and voice changes. It's usually caused by lung cancers or lymphomas. Chest x-ray will be the first step, but these patients will likely need a CT of the chest with contrast to better define their tumor and its relation to important structures. The treatment of SVC syndrome is usually non-emergent unless the patient has neurological signs or symptoms of increasing their cranial pressure. Finally, just a reminder that patients with cancer are at high risk for PE and pericardial fusions. Any chest pain or shortness of breath is PE until proven otherwise. Cancer patients may accumulate pericardial fusions slowly and won't be symptomatic until they reach a large size. Bedside ultrasound is the mainstay for diagnosis. Stable patients can have their fusions drained urgently in the cath lab or OR, but unstable patients may require emergent pericardiosynthesis in the ED as a life-saving procedure. That's all for part one of hemoc emergencies. Part two will focus on hematologic disorders in the ED and will be released simultaneously with this episode, so look for it in your podcast feed. Before we go, I want to give a shout out to our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. Their newest and latest product is the Trauma Kit for both adults and pediatrics, which has a total of 32 hours of trauma CME. This is super helpful for clinicians at trauma centers who need a certain number of trauma CME hours each year. So why not get it all in one place? As a reminder, EM residents can get free access by going to ebmedicine.net slash embasic, and attendings can get a great discount by following that link as well. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for EM Basic, signing off.